Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is brought to you by 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. And how are you this fine evening, Allison? <laughs> I'm well. Allison's laughing because someone asked her what she does in the podcast, and she said, Tim asked me how I'm doing, and I say, I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> she does far more than that. She does not give herself credit. That's the bulk of what I do, though. <laughs> On tonight's episode, we're going to be talking to a favorite guest of mine and a favorite guest of our audience's, Brother Richard. We're going to be discussing relics. Pink Floyd album? Deep dive? <laughs> I would like to hear Brother Richard's assessment of... That's one thing I didn't ask it to About ask About music, him. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask him like what kind of music he likes or what kind of music he liked before he was a monk or... A conversation for another time. We talk about not just relics within the Christian tradition, but we veer into some talk about relics within the Tibetan tradition, some talk about Yeti scalps in there. But there's some really, really interesting stories that Brother Richard relates that, you know, even though they're within the realm of talking about relics, they really fit in with strange familiars and other things we talk about, things like disappearing evidence and, mm-hmm. and things like that. They kind of really fit in. So I think this conversation is for everyone. And speaking of Brother Richard, our second patron show for June 
is going to be an interview with Brother Richard. This is primarily Allison asking questions of Brother well, Richard. How often do you get to ask a monk questions? For me, <laughs> well, pretty, pretty much whenever pretty, I want. Pretty regularly, <laughs> but I don't, I don't have a lot of ecclesiastical friends. <laughs> this was more... Um, you asking Brother Richard about Brother Richard, though. This isn't, you know, my yeah, normal yeah. conversations with Brother Richard are on a specific topic. No, I just was really curious about the trajectory of how in, in what we think of a sort of a quote-unquote modern age, one becomes a monk. I just don't know the process, so I just asked. I mean, I think that's a really interesting conversation as well, and that'll be a great one for our patrons. If you want to get every episode of Strange Familiars and help us out besides, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. $4 a month, you get two extra episodes of Strange Familiars. Starting last month, we started doing two episodes, and we're going to continue doing that going forward as long as we can. There will always be at least one, but right now we're trying to do two patron shows a month for our patrons. Go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. You can see all the different tiers of support there. Our patrons help us do Strange Familiars. We couldn't do it without them. Our patrons keep the show going, so we're happy to bring them two full shows every month now. Again, that's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you don't like the idea of a subscription like Patreon and you still want to help us out, if you go to the show notes under any episode at strangefamiliars.com, there's a paypal.me link. You can click that and make a one-time donation via PayPal. Before we get on with our episode, I do want to thank our patrons. Thanks so much, patrons. Thanks for all you do. We are here because of you. All right, let's move into the conversation with Brother Richard and relics. I'd like to welcome Brother Richard back to the show. Welcome back. Hi, Tim. It's, it's good to be back with you. Oh, thanks so much for coming on again. I'm happy to be here anytime. I, I just hope I'm not wearing out my welcome with the uh, strange, strange familiars listeners at this stage. I don't think so. From everything I've heard, people enjoy our talks. That's good to hear. You kind of brought this topic to me, and I think mm. probably because you've heard me mention relics in terms of Bigfoot evidence. Sure. Yeah, it came really, um, it, it kind of struck me, not just from, from uh, the podcast, but also from reading the um, uh, Where the Footprints End and the parallels that you drew between uh, relics and the classes of relics within the um, Christian tradition, I suppose, um, but relics in general and the, the whole phenomenon of, of evidence within the, the Bigfoot world um, and some of the, um, the ways in which it, the, the relic system could be used, I suppose, to categorize the kinds of evidence that you were looking at. So, yeah, the, the, the parallels struck me and um, I, I just thought uh, it might be interesting to look at at relics in general in that way, but with a with a strange familiar's lens. Sure, yeah. Well, the, the, the list of sort of topics you gave me is absolutely fascinating as soon as I read it. I said, <laughs> well, okay, we, this... don't, we don't need to look at all of them, but yeah. I just I just thought that might be might be a, a starting a starting place, yeah. So uh, just for anybody who hasn't heard me talk about it, I was trying to kind of frame a way to talk about Bigfoot evidence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether it came to me because, you know, growing up Catholic or, or what, mm -hmm. but it, it just hit me that, that, you know, you have this idea of primary relics, which mm. are, um, you should probably define it, not me, but the way I understand it is either part of a saint's body, a piece mm -hmm. of bone, yeah. perhaps, or, or fingernail or skin or, mm -hmm. or, or something, or one of their direct possessions. Is that correct? 
Um, second class, secondary okay, would be a direct possession. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So first class relic would be just essentially part of the saint. Right? Yeah. Yes. And in terms of Bigfoot, we didn't have to worry about possession so much. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. I was talking about basically we, we have the evidence we have is, is not first class relics, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some bits of hair and so forth, but mostly we have these, these second class relics, which are footprints, you know, impressions of footprints yeah. and so forth. And, you know, that's sort of the way I framed it. I couldn't think of a, you know, a, a better way to sort of uh, to, to frame mm. the discussion. But it's very, very interesting. The first thing you brought up is that there, there are relics common to all great traditions. Yeah. So so a relic, when, when people people think of it, I suppose they tend to think of either either um, something out of an antique store or, or something from more specifically Christian. But but the, the tradition of relics in the sense of um objects or as we said pieces of holy people or objects associated with them has been common to all of the the great traditions from the from the beginning um as far as i'm aware the relics of confucius for example they were venerated by the people of asia since his his passing in in 195 bc the relics of muhammad particularly things that he had used he died in in 8632 um and then in the Jewish tradition, which obviously would lead into the into the Christian tradition to some extent, there is a a very strong tradition of relics even as far back as as the patriarchs. So, for example, when the Israelites left Egypt, the scriptures tell us that they made provision to take the bones of Joseph with them. That Joseph had had um, uh, this is Joseph now of of Egypt fame. Joseph of the dream of the of the dreams, not not uh, Saint Joseph of the New Testament, but the. Mm-hmm. The original Joseph uh, had um, made the people promise him that when God would call, would eventually call them out of Egypt, they would take his bones with with them. The Ark of the Covenant contained relics, not just the famous, the stones that on which God had had written the, uh, the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, but also we're told that in the Ark at various times other sacred and holy objects were kept as well. So a pot that contained some of the manna that had been collected in the desert. Uh, the famous staff of Aaron. So you have all of these things that are associated with holy people or holy events that are sort of considered touchstones or, or connections in the physical world with with the, with the spiritual reality. And I suppose then when we move into the Christian tradition, particularly with the doctrine of the resurrection, the, the idea was that that um, the human body is is something that is going to, in some manner, in some form, eventually also be resurrected as well. So the body was considered something sacred and holy and good. Uh, and if somebody is a holy person, a man or a woman who's, who's living in a holy way of life, then uh, people became convinced that that um, the mere presence of their, their physical body, either living or their remains after they had died, in some way brought them into encounter with, with the divine. So you have... Um, from a very early point, I mean, from the scriptures themselves, the, the old, sorry, in the, in the New Testament, you have in the Acts of the Apostles, for example, um, the story of um, the people coming to, to Paul, to St. Paul, and uh, taking cloths that he had touched or breathed on uh, and using those for the healing of the sick and the casting out of, of, of demons. Um, you can go back to the gospel itself and you have the, the famous story of the woman who reaches out and touches the hem of the garment of Christ uh, so as to be healed. Uh, and so very, very um, early on, there was this idea of a kind of a sacramentality of the body 
uh, that, that a holy person filled with the presence of, of God or connected with the presence of God in some way, um, their, their body or their bodily remains could be a conduit to the divine as well. So that veneration starts very early in the Christian world as well. We should probably, on the onset, just go through the different classes of relics. Okay, so a primary or a first class relic is, as you said, a piece of the saint, and they have various designations. You'd have exsanguinous, which is of the blood, excapulous, which is a hair, hair of the head or of the beard. You would have um, exosibus, which is of the bone, and then you would have various other forms of, of relic that would be um, some of the the organs or the blood or tissue or skin. We can talk about things like incorruptibility of organs later, but but a primary class of relic is, is or a first class relic is a piece of the saint as such, either the full remains or, or, or a piece of the body. A second class relic then, um, secondary relic is uh, something that the saint used regularly. Okay. So that would be obviously their clothing, it could be their prayer book, their walking stick, um, elements that they used. I remember being in one monastery many years ago and uh, of one of our own monasteries and we were observing the collection of relics they had of one of the brothers who had died there who was considered very saintly and um, there was all of the usual things of the secondary relics, his prayer book, his 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 habit, uh, his rosary etc and there was a beautiful um, very well laundered pile of, of these kind of white uh, cloths that were wrapped up and sealed beautifully with wax. The Italians are, are great at the way they present these things. And we asked the, the brother who was with us, you know, what was this? And he strove for translation for a moment and eventually said to us, it's, um, how do you say, uh, the, the underwear of the saint. Ah. Um, so even that was was a secondary relic, though thankfully had been laundered. So uh, anything of, of general day-to-day usage which would be a secondary relic. A third class relic is a piece of of cloth or a piece of paper or parchment that has been touched to a first class relic. So this is like uh, from the Acts of the Apostles, the the, the cloth that St. Paul, that was touched to the body of St. Paul so so as to bring about healing in others. And these often have various rituals associated with them, which at times can, can, can almost blur into the sort of folk medicine end of things. So pieces of linen, pieces of flannel, particularly, uh, you'll be glad to hear. Um, uh, all of those those kind of things that are touched to the to the relics uh, and then are, are brought out to the to the public to be used for veneration or for or for connection. Another element, another kind of third class relic is something that you'd be interested in, which is is the footprints of the saint. So in in various at various times during uh, during um, history, there have been saints who have purportedly impressed their footprints into stone or into wood uh, or their handprints into stone or into wood while in ecstasy or in prayer as a reminder that they have been there or have or have walked there um, a way of sort of leaving an impression of themselves and these would often be used to mark out sanctuaries or places of prayer places of veneration places of of um, meditation or ecstasy where these things would have happened in the franciscan tradition for example we have the spot on on Mount Alverna, which was the place where St. Francis in ecstasy received the stigma of the visible, the visible wounds of Christ. Um, and there's a huge monastery complex built over that now, but the actual rock of the mountain uh, upon which he was standing when this when this happened uh, has a kind of a hollow in it that is said to have been hollowed out by the, the fires of the, uh, the angel who appeared in front of him. And that is still visible under glass to this day. So that would be considered a kind of a third class relic. They're the three primary kinds of relic that we would still have. Are there more? 
Uh, yeah, th- th- there are others it, in in the sense that that um, depending on how they would be used. So higher even than a first class relic is what we would call the relics of the passion. So these are relics that are directly associated with Christ himself. Uh, obviously, in the Christian tradition, we believe that Christ rose from the dead body and and soul. So there's no tomb or bones or, or body of Christ left. Mm-hmm. And so relics associated with him would be very, very important. So things like the nails of the passion, um, the thorns from the, the crown of thorns, the wood of the cross itself. Now, there's quite a proliferation of, of, of these. And, and this is because there was another doctrine which was present in the early church, which is very important, and it's sort of um, it, it's sort of forgotten to some extent nowadays. But that was that if you made an exact copy of an original relic and touched it to the original relic, it was considered to then have the virtue of the original relic. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so this is when people say, oh, but you know, there's the head of John the Baptist over here, and there's the skull of John the Baptist over there, and there's there's you know a hundred and something nails and all of that kind of stuff. Most of those, the vast majority of those, come from the the provenance of the idea that if you made a kind of adoption of signatures almost, that if you made an exact replica and touched it to the original relic, then it would be considered a secondary relic. It's not a primary relic. It would be considered a secondary relic, but it would be considered to have the virtue or the power of an original relic. And um, if you want to link it back to <laughs> to Bigfoot, etc., one of the things that was very misunderstood um, by a lot of the kind of explorers and cryptozoologists, etc., who went into the... Um, the Himalayas seeking the Yeti and came across these Yeti skulls and Yeti hands uh, and, and analyzed them and then discovered, well, they were actually artificial. The Tibetan uh, Buddhist understanding of relic is very, very similar to the Catholic and Orthodox Christian understanding, which would include this idea that if you have an original relic and then make something that is an exact copy, and it's made in a ritual way, it's not just not just hammered together, it's, there's, a, there's very specific rituals with it, then as far as the practitioner is concerned, that is the same thing. It's one and the same. So when people asked, was that the scalp of a Yeti? And they were told, absolutely, yes. Nobody was lying to them. In their tradition and in their understanding, it was oh, wow. a scalp of the Yeti. It had all the virtue of a scalp of the of a Yeti. It didn't matter what it was made from. So it, it's, it's always important when we investigate these things to understand the kind of the culture that we're treading, hopefully, with reverence on when we when we walk in to look at to look at these things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the same is true for for as I said for for the, for some of the Christian relics. So uh, while there's there's very good and very strong provenance and historical record for for many of the major relics of of the Passion, uh, of the Suffering of Christ, relics of, of the Cross, etc. There are others that were specifically made as as copies. Um, and would often be made for very important pilgrims who would make maybe a once in a lifetime journey to a particular reliquary to venerate a relic. And if they were important enough and 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 had the money, they would very often have these copies created, which then they would get to touch to the original relic and bring back to their own their own place or their own sanctuary. Is there one central body that's in charge of provenance of relics, or would one? Yes, well, there 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 is indeed. So so the Vatican has has an office of relics, um, to which uh, all of the various religious orders, etc. Um, we would also have our kind of masters of of relics. So we have we have our own man, and his job is that when a friar passes away, who is considered saintly, and there's there's considered enough evidence to begin. A process of investigation into his life with regard to public veneration, etc. 
he would direct then um, the harvesting of relics. So firstly, only second class relics are harvested. So that would be anything that the person has used would be kept and preserved and kept safely. And then only after someone is declared blessed, which is a step along the way to being canonized. Um, it's the last, the last step, as, apart from canonization itself. At that point, part of the beatification process is what they call the recognition of relics, which is where the master of relics comes to specifically open the tomb and to have a recognition, an examination of the relics of the individual. So they would be they would be recognized to make sure that they know where they are, what they are exactly. And also they would be checked for signs of incorruptibility as well, whether or not um, the person has um, gone through um, ordinary putrefaction or whether the body or parts of the body have remained incorrupt, which would be considered again a sign of sanctity or sanctification. It's not necessary for somebody to be made a saint that there's incorruptibility. And again, there can often be confusion in the popular mind between what we call um, sanctified incorruptibility, which is where someone's body has remained pretty much almost exactly as it was at the moment it died, at the moment the person died. So the body remains um, lifelike. Um, there's no sign of rigor mortis. And there is no no putrefaction without any kind of preservatives being used of any kind. That's sanctified incorruptibility. Uh, other kinds of incorruptibility can be present, which is just of maybe of some of the organs, particularly organs that were associated with the virtue of that individual. So, for example, St. Anthony of Padua, who was an extraordinary preacher, his, his body rotted as normal, but his tongue and vocal cords remain incorrupt to this day. And then you have what we would call a natural incorruptibility, which is just where there's natural mummification. So again, the remains can be venerated as such, but nothing, it wouldn't be considered miraculous in any way. It's just natural mummification. And then you would have preservation, which is where, and this happens quite often now when the, the norm uh, with a lot of the kind of funeral customs in the West is to include some form of embalming. So once embalming has happened of any, of any kind, the person cannot be declared to be incorrupt because there has been some form of interference um, with, the, with the kind of physical putrefaction. So you can't say what would be incorruption or not. Right. Now, I've heard or, or read, rather, mm. some stories of, I think probably during the Middle Ages or probably Renaissance, where um, there was pilfering of relics, but not, not by, you know, raiders or barbarians or anything like that, but <laughs> from church to church. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, this was particularly common in Italy. It was railed against by the church and there was huge um, uh, kind of, um, what would you say, punitive measures put in place so people could be excommunicated for interfering with a relic or stealing a relic. To this day, it's forbidden to trade in relics with regard to the church under pain of excommunication. But uh, sadly, uh, where economics appear people often have their ways of doing things. So you would have, there were two or three ways that this would happen. Very often you would have somebody saying, well, I've had a dream or I've had a vision and the saint has told me that they're not happy in that city anymore and they want to move to our city, <laughs> which was very convenient to the, saint, to the city who, who now, now was about to receive a, a new saint. Um, there's a lovely term for this, which is called translation of relics, which means the movement of relics from one place to another. Translation is normally with ecclesiastical permission, but very often in the Middle Ages particularly, um, it wasn't. And so even for our own saint, St. Francis, when he was buried, 
even though he was very much of Assisi and had declared that he would be buried in Assisi and that his remains were to remain in Assisi forever, the friars at the time had to actually hide his remains and bury him secretly in the church. So for many years we knew he was buried there, but we didn't know exactly where his tomb was. It's only it's only quite recently that, uh, well, I say recently in, in, a, in an ecclesiastical sense in the last couple of hundred years, that we revealed to the world exactly where his body was buried within the, the church in Assisi. And that was simply because the towns were very much at war with each other. And one of the great ways of uh, showing that God was preferring your town to their town was to be able to break in and carry off their saint. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff that went on, sadly. And even to this day, there can be um, uh, struggles um, around where exactly uh, the, the body of the saint is going to be because obviously that's where very often a shrine will grow up and not only will it bring pilgrims but it will also bring trade to towns um, you know people who come to the pil- to, on pilgrimage they, they need to be fed and watered and all of those kind of things so it can still be a big business unfortunately to this day so if I were to take a piece of flannel just mm. as, a, as a layman you know and, sure. and if I had access to a first class relic and, mm-hmm. and touch it to that maybe it would have personal power to me, but it would not necessarily be recognized then as as a third class relic. Uh, once you can once you can demonstrate that it has been touched to a first class relic, so if you have a photograph or uh, evidence in some way that it has been, um, th- then that that is de facto a third class relic at that point. Oh, okay. And can be used for veneration elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if there were specific you know rituals. No, no, no. I mean, again, very often, um, I suppose, as you get up into into the dealing with with first class relics and things like that, yes, there are very specific rituals in terms of the the dealing with all of those and and how the relics are recognized and what portions will be removed and what can be can be removed to to be brought elsewhere. But when when you're dealing with third class relics, no, it's 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 quite simple, really, uh, in terms of how how those relics can be can be received. Um, here in Ireland, we had one of our brothers who, who passed away some years ago, and he, he was he would have been kind of popularly venerated very much as a very saintly man. I, I had the, the, the good fortune to live live in, in community with him for a while, and I can certainly attest to the fact that he was one of the most extraordinary men I ever met in terms of his, his sanctity, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Uh, Brother Seraphin was his name, an extraordinary man. He was the, the porter, the doorkeeper in our friary in Kilkenny for over 30 years and had a huge reputation for the efficacy of his prayers, particularly for healing. But when he died, I was fortunate and blessed to, to, to actually be at his deathbed when he died. And there were various phenomena as he died that would lead us even further to say that he was he was certainly in the, the odor of sanctity, as we'd call it. But after he died, his, uh, his body was waked uh, in, in the Friary Church for about three days because of the amount of people that wanted to, to file by him and see him. And he started off with a very long beard. But by the time we came to bury him, he, he had a very short beard because uh-huh. people were leaning into the coffin and cutting parts of his beard and parts of his habit off to take away as relics. So they were getting first class and second class and third class a, a, along the way. And we ended up having to station friars beside the coffin to stop people taking pieces of him, <laughs> as, uh, wow. lest we wouldn't have enough to bury uh, along the way. But yeah, he was very, very beloved. And to this day, people will actually take earth from his from his grave and, and bring that to the sick to look for his intercession for cures. Wow. Where, to be in the presence of that, I, I don't know, is that is that something that happens commonly for you? Like in... 
Not not as commonly as I'd like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but but uh, but yeah. I mean, we, I've been blessed along the way to live with one or two men who were definitely there. You know, um, wow. all of us are works in progress, and we sure. all of our good days and our bad days, they, them included. But certainly, certainly, they had turned a corner. I would say that most of us kind of hope one day eventually we might reach. Uh, when Seraphin died, um, myself and three of the the friars were with him in his in his uh, his room, and he'd, he'd gone to a nursing home at that stage because he was quite quite ill and quite feeble, uh, and he had entered into a kind of a coma, and the, the nurses felt that he was beginning to enter um, the stage, sort of where he would move towards death. So they had phoned us, and we had all come out, and we were just sitting in the room praying quietly with him, and uh, we were praying the rosary. He was a great devotee of the rosary, uh, and even though he was in a coma, one of the friars just I, I said I don't know why, but just out of out of some intuition placed the rosary beads in his hand and, and said to him, now, Seraphim, you know, you can pray along with us if you want. Now, obviously, we hadn't heard a word from him. He'd been in a coma for, for days. Uh, but as we were praying the rosary, one of the lads gave me a, a nudge and asked me to look over. And even though he was still in the coma, he was telling the beads with his hands, that the beads were going through his hands. Oh, wow. So um, it came to the point where you offer the prayers for the dying. And as we were offering the prayers, and I can say this with full authority and full truth, and I'd put my hand on a stack of Bibles if need be, um, just at the moment as as he breathed his last, um, his, his face shone. We had, we had just beautiful light from his face, just shot out of his face. Oh, wow. Um, just for a second, just for a moment or two. But the nurse, uh, one of the religious sisters who was there, and myself and two other two others of the friars saw it. After he died, I was I, we were we stayed on in the in the in the friary to be there for his funeral and all of that. And I was staying in his room uh, that night. Uh, speaking of relics and things like that, that night I had a, an experience where he he directed me to a place in his room where he had actually uh, kept relics of of the saints and and had asked me to ask me to to take them. And I still have those relics to this day. Um, D- so it was d- directed uh, you in vision and dream and. Uh, in in uh, audibly, but without seeing him. Okay, I, wow. I heard his voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was it was quite a quite an extraordinary experience. He literally woke me up, got me up out of the bed, and told me where to go. And um, I picked up a crucifix uh, that that was there, and he said, "That's for you. Uh, you're to take that and do some good with it." He was he was very he was a very abrupt man in the way he spoke. So it was that that was it. Do some good with it, and not to be worried about him. So, which we weren't anyway <laughs> at that stage. So it was only afterwards when I got back after all the funeral, I discovered that the, the crucifix actually contained three or four relics of our of our Capuchin saints. Oh, um, wow. So I, I still still have that to this day. Yeah, yeah. But cer- certainly Seraphin was a great, great sense of humor and a, a real country man. He was a farmer and had, had come into the order and had worked all his life. But everybody would have said that, you know, there are, Two or three every generation, and he was certainly one of them. Wow! Uh, not to yeah. derail the relics conversation, but sure, having you on before, you're very generous in talking about your path versus other people's paths, and sure, and sure. you know, you're very clear about your chosen path. But given that you are in your chosen path, mm. experiences like that one must be a wonderful buoying of faith. Yes, yeah. I mean, they they are. There's there's no doubts about them, and and we don't talk about them too often because people people start. Yeah, it's not about the extraordinary, you know. It's about mm-hmm. the day to day compassion and kindness and those kind of things. And when the other things happen, they're they're boosts, as you say, you know. 
but I wouldn't want people to think that just because they're not in in say the monastic path or something like that that they're not open to those to those things and I, and I know many people have I mean I have very good friends of other faiths and traditions who have had similar experiences with mm-hmm. the great and the good in their in their in their tradition as well you know so I I certainly wouldn't be using it as a kind of a proof text right you know right. um for anything else I think the important thing is for people to to recognize that there are men and women since the foundation of time who have given themselves maybe more energetically to the good than most of us do and when that happens there are results they are changed and in fact going back to the relics i mean that's the basic theological understanding of the relic is that the bodily substance of the person who engages in in deep connection with the divine is in fact changed it's of a different character it's it's um, divinized in, in a way by the presence of of the spirit of god and so it becomes a kind of a conduit of the miraculous Every year about this time, I feel like we come to the end of TV. <laughs> yes. Now, I don't watch a ton of TV anyway, but there's there's a few shows I like. There's a couple comedy shows I like and a couple other series I like to watch. I don't know whether this because of the pandemic that it made it extra worse. It seems like there's not a lot of new content being made as far as TV. So when MHZ Choice came into our life, it really was like a like a they threw us a, a lifeline here I mean, because we were at the end of tv it was just like there's nothing to watch yeah. so we're done mhz choice is a streaming service like netflix or hulu or hbo max it's mhz as in zebra mhz choice if you go to mhzchoice.com and you enter the promo code strange you can get your first month free after that it's just 7.99 a month there's no commitment you can cancel any time Make sure to enter that promo code STRANGE. MHZ has programs from over 20 countries, mostly programs from across Europe. There's lots of crime programs and kind of... I think things that would fit in the sort of folk horror, noir kind of category from foreign countries. I think a lot of stuff for our listeners to enjoy there. And we are watching one called Secta. It comes from Russia. We watched episodes five and six this week, and it kind of propelled from this kind of creeping tenseness into like... Now it's this manic, like, what's going on? And, like, a lot of things. Dueling cults. And and a lot of things are (laughs) happening, yeah. It's gotten really intense, and I really wanted to finish watching it, but... I'd like to stay on track so we can watch two episodes a week, and kind of everyone can watch together if we want. Yeah, exactly. I went from enjoying this show to, like, really liking this show to now I'm like, okay, I can't wait to figure out what happens, like, what's going on here. But there's lots of other programs on there. Another thing I really like about MHC Choice is their subtitles. Easy to read, easy to follow. You don't get behind. They give you the information you need without like extraneous things that don't make sense. And they do all their own subtitling in-house. You can get MHC Choice through Amazon Prime, Xfinity, the Roku channel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the only place to redeem that code, strange, is at mhcchoice.com. So go there and do a direct subscription. Get the first month free mhzchoice.com. We've been really enjoying it. We think you guys will like it too. Well, that should lead us into the next intrinsic versus extrinsic power and relics. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose this was one of the great the, the, the great debates would be. So if, if you have a 
a relic on an altar and somebody who's sick goes and, and prays in front of, of that, um, seeking the intercession of the saint. And again, I want to be very clear within the Christian tradition right the way across, there's no worshipping of relics. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it is simply recognizing that we are in the presence of someone who has maybe walked a little further in the journey towards towards the divine than we have. And we're asking them for their help in exactly the same way as you turn around to your your granny or your auntie and say, will you say a prayer for me? You know, it's it's it, the, the communion with, with, with the saints is is exact same as the communion you would have with your family or your church group or, or your, you know, your meditation group or whatever it might be. So in that instance, if someone is sitting in front of that relic and meditates on the individual concerned and seeks their intercession and suddenly say a, a cure is wrought, the, the debate very often is, well, was the cure wrought because of the intrinsic power of the divine present in and through the relic? Or was it in fact wrought by the faith of the individual who's there, who believes now that there is a possibility and is maybe in a heightened experience and I suppose a kind of a sanctified placebo effect, if you mm-hmm. like, is, is in place. And my answer to that is it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know. If, I was going to say, person, if, because it's strange yeah, familiar, either way, it doesn't matter. Absolutely. As long as the effect is, the is a good effect, that, that, yes. that's fine. But I suppose theologians and scientists and psychologists would say, you know, is it one thing or the other? And again, I suppose, as is so often with anything to do with with the other, if we want to include include the, the 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 holy ones as part of that overall category, I always think it's both and, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to either or, and I think you know even in the scriptural traditions, whether it's Christ speaking or even the Buddha speaking, very often the the the, the, the two factors that seem to have to be there is the, the divine generosity and presence through the through the holy one, but also a kind of an open accepting. Uh, faith present in the, in the the one who is seeking, which also has to include an acceptance of the fact that they may not receive what they are looking for. Right. I think that that's that's also a very important important element within it as well. A kind of a trust that the greater or the bigger knows our ultimate good and will give us what is necessary for that. So yeah, I think I think where where the extrinsic or or, or intrinsic uh, power argument comes into play. It's a very interesting argument from a theological point of view, but for the person who is seeking whatever the grace or the gift is, I'm far more likely to say, well, as long as the effect is good, why worry at that point, you know? Yeah, yeah. With faith healing, with any of this sort of thing, hmm. if if you've convinced yourself, say, hmm. you know, that, that uh, this works and, and you get benefit from it. Sure. Then, sure, absolutely. Yeah, go with it. And uh, it, at some mm. point in you know my own spiritual path, I I sort of gave up worrying about it, and yeah. and I became much yeah. happier because of that. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I think that's very important. And it's not a kind of a hedging your bets. It's not a sort of a denigrating of of either one or the other. It's simply saying that there is a more earthed experience that that is that is possible. I think when we put the kind of categorization or speci- speciation to one side and are simply present to the reality as it is yeah yeah i, I and in a way it's 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 very similar to you know my dealing with with the paranormal and that at some point you just back up and you say well i'm probably not going to know either way yeah and yeah and it is very very similar to that for me it's just well i don't know mm. but this works for me 
yeah and yeah yeah and that's i mean i go back to where the relics are concerned i i one, one experience i had some years ago now was i had a, a a cousin in the Irish sense, which can be a cousin to third or fourth degree, or may even be a neighbor's child, but we call them all cousins. But this was a cousin of by blood out to the third or fourth degree, a very young girl. Um, she was only four or five, I think, when I when I first encountered her. But unfortunately, she had a, a brain tumor, a very severe brain tumor, and things weren't looking good. And they were going to do fairly radical surgery. Um, and they weren't sure, really, it was a kind of a last chance sort of thing. So her, her mother managed to track down my number. Again, I'd never met them before. They were just out on the wings of the family tree and was wondering if I could bring um, one of the more famous relics that we that we hold, which is one of the the gloves, the kind of fingerless gloves that that um, that were worn by Padre Pio, who was one of the, oh. the great kind of Capuchin saints and mystics, yes. the stig- a stigmatist. He died in 19, 1967. So uh, anyway, I got I got permission to bring it out to her. And she wanted me to come in and to bless her little girl. Eleanor was the name of the, 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 the little girl. So I got to the hospital and walked into the into the room. And the second the little girl saw me, she burst into, t- into tears, um, which is is always a great reaction to get. But it was a, it was a complete, I, I suppose, a, a stranger in a in a in a brown robe with a big beard mm-hmm. walking into your room at that stage. So her mother wanted me to to bless her with the relic. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to traumatize the child even more I said look you take the relic and you go and just lay it on her head and I'll sit outside praying and that's fine so she did that anyway and she came out and, and whatever else it had brought at that stage it had brought some little level of, of calm to the to the mother mm-hmm. uh, concerned sure. so that was that was good I went off home and they promised me they'd ring me the next day once the surgery was over the surgery was to take about three hours and they were to call me just to let me know how she'd gotten on so Three hours came, six hours came, nine hours came. I still had heard nothing. And eventually I got back in touch with another relative who knew her. And she just said to me, oh, have they not phoned you yet? And I, I said, no. And she said, OK, I'll get them to ring you straight away. So I presumed news was quite bad. The mother rang me and um, she was almost incoherent on the phone. So it took a while. And then eventually her husband came on the phone and he said to me, there's chaos here because when they brought the little girl in to do the operation, they opened her up and there was no tumor. And the panic was they thought they had opened the wrong side of her head. Mm. Um, so there was chaos and panic and they checked and checked again and there was no tumor. The, the bud that um, the tumor had come from was still there, but there was no tumor. So they were sent home with the x-rays of the little girl's head, which shows that morning a tumor there. And that afternoon, no tumor. The mother puts it down to the relic of Padre Pio. And I'm quite sure that was involved as well. Um, and all she ever does is talk about how thankful she is to the oh. to the friars for and for, for our prayer. But to me, I'm absolutely convinced it was the faith of the mother that actually assisted in that or moved that. Mm-hmm. And And when those kind of things happen, you know, to a four year old who doesn't even know what's going on, there's not there's nothing. It's certainly not about the um, the belief or the spontaneous healing through belief of the the child, you know, themselves. But I think it's a mixture of different factors coming together that allows that to happen. You know, um, it was quite an extraordinary day. And wow. um, uh, we have two brothers who are involved in what we call relics ministry, which is basically praying with the sick and being with the sick and visiting hospitals and things oh, only when requested. Mm-hmm. Um, but they bring some of those relics with them and. 
quite often, not all the time by any means, but, but quite often there are quite extraordinary healings reported. It's, it, you've reminded me of a story of my own, which really mm. has not to do with relics, though it, though it may mm. have to do with prayer, because uh, I said, in, when, in, when my children were young, I said more Hail Marys probably than, <laughs> than uh, uh, I ever had before or since. It was mm. a, a very constant mantra for me. At one point, Gideon was to have hip surgery, and it was a, it was a very serious uh, hip dysplasia, and the surgery was going to be something like nine hours it was to take. Wow. And he would be in the hospital for at least a week afterwards. It was, it was a very serious, very serious mm. thing, and we went to a special hospital for it, and uh, they took him off to surgery, and uh, not even yet a toddler. Uh, he had, you know, just very, very young. Young, okay. uh, just just out, sort of between that baby and toddler stage, and uh, the surgeon takes him off, and she's a very nice woman, and you know we're set to wait, you know, nine hours in the waiting room before we get news, and about an hour later, I see her walking down the hall, and I thought, well, this is either really good or really bad. I don't know yeah. what this is going to be, and she was dumbfounded. She said, I. I don't know what happened. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, according to her, there was no possible way to, to pop his hip back in without surgery. Mm. And she said, he got into the operating room and something just felt like different to me. And I just pushed on his hip. He was already under anesthesia. So he was, she wasn't going to hurt him. Mm. And she said, and it's his hip just popped into socket. Wow. <laughs> and she said, all I had to do was, was cut a few tendons that were, yeah. you know, that needed to be cut. And he came home with us that day. Isn't that wonderful? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, you know, you never know, but I always think about the series of miracles we had yeah. with, sure. with their births, and, and it's uh, never, never... Well, I think consi considering the vulnerability of, of any child, how any of us becomes an adult at, at all is, mm -hmm. is a miracle in itself, you know, um, the amount of scrapes we get through. There's a wonderful story of uh, another saint, uh, John Bosco, who... Had a vision of his guardian angel uh, towards his, his the end of his life, and the angel was basically saying, "I'm exhausted from from looking after you, you know." <laughs> um, and I think it's it's probably what we're going to meet ourselves when we when we finally have that kind of vision of the other side. There's going to be a whole lot of people saying, "We're exhausted from from looking after you, you know." Your turn to start working now. <laughs> one other thing before we get back on relics. Um, sure. I have a Protestant friend who said to me one day. Um, it's, I, I just don't understand you Catholics and, you know, this veneration of, of saints. We were particularly talking about Mary. Mm. And and he said that her son was, you know, the Holy One and, and this and that. And, um, and I said, well, look at it this way. I said, think of your friend and maybe, maybe you want to ask your friend for a favor. Mm. Sometimes you might go to his mother. And yeah. say, say, can you put in a good word for me here? You know, Absolutely. I have this. Yeah. And, yeah. and I said, it's as simple as that. It's, it's not, like you said, it's not worship. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's veneration, yeah, yeah. certainly, but it's, uh, it's, it's not worship. Well, I always, I always smile um, when, when um, you know, people talk about being, being anti-relic. And I always say to them, well, just, just go to your house and look around and see how many things you have as souvenirs from places you've been on holiday photographs you have of people you love things that you've kept letters that you've kept you know like they're relics just as much as any as any bone might be mm -hmm. um 
And it's only when you begin to talk about it that way that people realize it's it's a remembrance more than anything else, a remembrance to bring about a sense of presence. And that's really what we're talking about with those things. I mean, even the the, the early the early custom early customs of the of the very early church that sort of moved towards the, the veneration of relics came out of this idea that you know they wanted to be supported by the witnesses of those the witness of those who had gone before. Um, so you know the, the bones of the martyrs were extremely important. They were they were the ones who had given everything to show the the validity of the of the teaching. And so when the when the communities would gather, they wanted to gather around these people. They saw them as being as being present still, um, not just in their story, but in their you know in in the kind of that idea of communion of saints that they were they were present with them. And so that's where it comes from. It's it's literally having the the photograph, the the object that reminds us of you know the grandfather, the grandmother, the 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 person who's just gone. When a miracle, a healing. Uh, mm. Anything is attributed to a relic. Is there anyone who keeps records of of those of, of the the miracles and healings? Yeah, I, I mean, to, not in, not in a very uh, official way. It would depend. Very often, if a relic is is associated with a particular shrine, so if if you're going to a place where there's a tomb or there's a there's a relic there, there would be a chronicle kept there. Um, every religious house, every monastery, every convent has as as part of its uh, constituency has a chronicler you you have someone who's appointed to actually record anything of interest and one of the things that would be recorded would be any kind of unusual uh, occurrence i remember speaking to uh the the, the cryptozoologist um carl schuker and we, we were talking about the fact that you know there's a vast vast untapped archive of um the extraordinary uh in, in all of these these uh, chronicles that monasteries have had, you know, some monasteries having having continuous presence and observance for for over a thousand years. That that was in in connection with a, another another piece of disappearing evidence that happened along along the way. That's a story for another day. Um, but he was fascinated by this, and I was saying, you know, particularly the the the, the missionaries, those kind of people who 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 went into um, you know Africa, Asia, the Americas, etc. Et and um, one of the things that many of them did was to record everything that they saw. And uh, along the lines of that, were recorded all of the various um, miraculous occurrences, or or um, the, the the cures that took place along the way, or even just extraordinary what we would now call, I suppose, Fortiana. You know, the kind of Fortian phenomena that that would be observed. And it's fascinating. I mean, even even when I sit down with two or three of the brothers here who are quite elderly now, but would have spent a lot of their early days in in um, uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, um, in in South Africa, some of the stories um, that they that that they would tell of the things they had seen, even in the natural world, you know, it's all recorded in our chronicles. But again, it it takes someone to kind of sift through a huge amount of day-to-day often mind-numbing very basic boring detail of of day-to-day life to find the the sort of the pearl in the oyster um (laughs) along the way but there there are there are extraordinary experiences related yeah 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 my uh a good friend of mine worked on the oxford book of medieval latin um, oh well, gone through all the chronicles yeah yeah, and any of the latin in stone breath is originates from him uh, uh or uh-huh. well it might originate from me but it's certainly checked through him to make sure <laughs> to make sure i got it right but he was telling me just some of the stories because i i had come across some story from I, 
I think some some monk had recorded some some wonderful story about basically seeing a, a troop of dead people, you know, march through the town or something. Oh yeah, sure. And mm-hmm. it's just this fantastic story. And I I said to him like, this is incredible. Like, look at this story. And he just very matter of factly said, oh, there's so many of those. <laughs> yeah. He said, yeah. there's just so many. Absolutely. I mean, the chronicles of some of the monasteries. There's, if if any of your listeners would like to even have begin begin to have a have a kind of an idea of what's out there, there's a wonderful book called uh, Journey to the Holy Mountain, which is by a travel writer whose name has escaped me now, but he's famous enough. He's gone all over the world. But he he decided he would he would write about the Christian monasteries in the Middle East, um, and he was coming at it really from a uh, sort of an anthropological point of view, a kind of a vanishing phenomena, etc. Looking at all all of this, but what he was fascinated by was not just the vibrancy of the monastic communities when he actually got to them and visited them, but the way in which they dealt with with time, the way in which they kind of um, uh, dwelt uh, sort of in a, in a non-linear form of time, many of them, and also the the living presence of the of the saints. There's, he recounts one beautiful moment where one of the brothers is telling him that um, St. Anthony of the desert, a, a man who, who lived around the year um, uh, 500 or so, sorry, 300 or so, you know, had, had visited the monastery that day and that the monks had been chatting with him. And uh, our, our friend, the writer says to him, but did you see him? And he said, no, no, I couldn't see him. And he said, what, was that because you weren't holy enough? <laughs> the monk looked at him and said, no, it's because I left my glasses in my room. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are different ways of, of living with kind of one foot in, in the next uh, world or in, in, in the, 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 the eternal. It's going to annoy me now. I can't. Oh, William Dalrymple. That's the name of the author. William Dalrymple. Extraordinary travel writer. But yeah, if anybody would like to kind of kind of have some sort of a of an understanding of the kind of events in the Chronicles, etc., then uh, Journey to the Holy Mountain is a good book to begin with. We've talked about relics in a kind of general sense, and you gave us a few mm. specific stories. But let's, you know, for people, that, there's some very famous relics we can talk about that mm. people have probably heard of. Of course. Sure. Uh, well, in, in the last conversation or the Christmas conversation we had, we, we talked about the, the Grail, yes, um, yeah. particularly. So, of course, the, the 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 high point of relics are relics associated with with Christ or or the, or the Blessed Mother. Um, and again, because in Jesus, with the resurrection and ascension, we don't have bodily remains. And with the, with Our Lady, um, again, the Christian tradition would be that she was assumed into heaven. There isn't a tomb uh, or, or or remains in that sense. So things associated with them. Are, are very important. Next to the Grail, I suppose the most important relic, as such, um, would would be uh, the. I'm sure many of your your listeners will know the the, the shroud or the holy shroud, as, as it's known, which is a large cloth um, held in in Italy, which uh, purports to be the, the the burial shroud of of Christ and to have been marked at the moment of his resurrection with the image of Christ, um, uh, or at least of a, of a crucified man on it. Now, the church's teaching on this, in, in terms of all relics, by the way, not just this relic, but all relics, is that no Catholic, no no Christian is obliged to believe in any relic. Um, it's not essential to the faith. It's simply seen as a support. And so to this day, um, because we can't say 100% for definite, this is what it is or anything else, it's simply spoken of as an icon of the passion, an archetypal icon of, of the passion, uh, icon having a very specific Christian understanding as being a religious image which mediates divine presence. So uh, 
its history is, is, is pretty extraordinary. As far as we are able to trace, it comes down right from the first century. It's spoken of by one of the very earliest historians of the church, Eusebius of Caesarea. Um, it was first of all known as the Mandilian uh, or the Mandalion, depending on how, how you, you wish to pronounce it. But the uh, the Mandilian was, was a, a cloth that just exposed the face. And it's believed that that was the shroud folded. You can still see the fold marks on the shroud to, the, to this day. Um, was brought to the uh, to the west after the Crusaders sacked Constantinople, which began the Great um, Schism, or was one of the events that led to uh, the schism of Eastern and Western Christianity. And then after that, there's a pretty much um, fairly consistent timeline. We know we know where it is all the way through right up to the uh, 1970s. Before we get to that, I suppose one of the most important things was in the early 1900s, late, well, late 1900s, er, late 1800s, early 1900s. It was photographed for the first time. Photography being fairly new, as I'm sure Alison could attest to, one of the, the great debates was whether it was right to photograph sacred things or not. And in fact, speaking of third class relics, very often photographs of relics are used as third class relics. So you take a photograph of the first class relic and then you touch it to the first class relic. And therefore, the photograph is now a third class relic mm. with an image of, of veneration. But when they photographed the, the shroud, they discovered that the image is actually in negative. Mm -hmm. And so you have this extraordinary, very ghost-like, um, radiant image of, um, of a crucified man crucified in a way that is is biologically accurate uh, to what we know now of Roman crucifixion, which wouldn't have been known back in the Middle Ages, as far as we are aware. So, for example, we tend to think of Christ's crucifixion wounds being through the palms of the hand, when in fact they were probably through the sort of the heel of the hand into the wrist, because quite simply a nail through the palm of the hand couldn't support the weight of a human body. So those kind of examples. And there are many, many others of them many other examples. Pollen was found on the shroud that, that goes back to the Holy Land. Um, even even dust particles have been examined and people have said that it comes from the Holy Land, etc. There are lots of other theories. There's all kinds of theories ranging from Leonardo, a, a forgery by Leonardo da Vinci right, yeah. to forgeries um, that the Knights Templar created. There's all kinds of, of wonderful uh, Dan Brown-like you know mm -hmm. theories that go with it. But the fact remains that it's still seen as an object of huge veneration. It has been examined scientifically, I think, four times now at this stage. The first ones were in the late 70s, where after 120 hours of examination, they couldn't come to a full conclusion themselves. And eventually one one member of the commission decided to make a statement himself. He claimed it was definitely a forgery by a medieval artist, but, but he also said we can't work out how he did it. Hmm. Then in the 1980s, John Paul II, Pope at the time, offered it up again for scientific examination. And at that stage, carbon-14 dating was done, uh, which came out uh, as both, depending on what part was being examined, uh, as both medieval and as first century. So that really confused them. But then they discovered that the shroud had been through two very serious fires in its history mm -hmm. and that that may have uh, had an effect on, on the materials. And then finally, in 2005, I think, was the latest examination. And uh, that, again, came out as being more than likely that the material itself was first century Palestinian. But that doesn't say that the image was created then. It doesn't say that the that, that you know, that it's definitively the shroud. And even if we could say that it was of a man who was crucified in the first century, we can't say 
you know, that that was particularly Jesus, for example. But it's a fascinating relic, and the example of it is is um, is something that has certainly influenced Christian art, for example, all the way down. The, the, the rules of Byzantine iconography as to how the face of Christ and the proportions of the face of Christ are depicted are exactly the proportions of the shroud itself. So we know that at the very least it was studied uh, for a very, very long time by people who wanted to, to create a kind of a likeness of Christ. And um, the veil of Veronica is related as well, or potentially yeah, so, we're told in the in the scriptures that that in the Gospel of John they speak of two different uh, bundles of cloth that were found in the tomb after the resurrection. We're told that the grave cloths were put in one place, and then we're told that the sudarium, the cloth that went over the head, um, because according to the Jewish burial customs at the time, the body uh, was was uh, enfolded in a cloth that kind of went from the heels up along the back of the person over their head and was bound then back down at the heel again, and that's what. The shroud, if it is authentic, that's the cloth that it would it, they would claim it to be. However, there was also a further cloth then that was that was placed um, over the head itself, and uh, that cloth is held in another cathedral in in Italy, uh, and that cloth and the shroud, interestingly, uh, in an examination that was done, the blood stains, the placing of the blood stains match exactly, so much so that we can at least say that they were probably on the same individual at the same time. Mm-hmm. The veil of Veronica, um, which is not in scripture, but it's a very, a very ancient uh, legend, which is that, that during his, his agony, his journey on the way to, to Calvary, a woman took pity, went out, wiped the face of, of, of Christ, and in tribute or in thanksgiving for her, for her act of mercy, uh, the, the face of Christ was imprinted on her veil, on, on, her, on her, her cloak. Um, Veronica was not her name. Veronica comes from Vero Icona, the true image or the ah, true face. Ah, um, so that's why okay. uh, she, she received the title Veronica, but that wasn't her name. There's, there's all kinds of names given in, in tradition, but we, we know for a fact that, that uh, Veronica is, is her title as opposed to her actual, her actual name. And again, that cloth is one that is preserved in the Vatican in, in, in Rome and is, is brought out from, from time to time. I think the last time was the Holy Year, the year 2000 was brought out for for, um, exhibition as well. But again, it's important that when the church brings out these relics, they don't make claims that that these are the definitive authentic article. They simply say that they have a history of veneration and can be considered venerable because of the tradition surrounding them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. 
Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. So what about the True Cross? And I've heard, again, this is one of these <laughs> stories where they said if you put all the splinters of the True Cross mm. together, you'd have however many you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first thing is, let's talk about the size of the true cross. So, so the the um, uh, the size and shape, shall we say, the cross that was used. If we go by historical, the kind of historical tradition now, was probably a T-shaped cross, uh, a, a tau-shaped cross. So the Romans, who were masters of crucifixion, um, there were particular soldiers whose entire only job was to crucify. They were specialists in it. They got it done very, very well and very quickly. They were they were quite accurate in uh, and and sort of um, expert in their use of this method. They would set up. Uh, stake. So if you can imagine the vertical part of the cross, the piece that would have been in the ground, that was the vertical stake. And they pretty much remained where they were. And then it was the cross piece, the piece that, that your arms would be crucified to. That was the piece that you were sentenced to carry. So when we speak of Christ carrying his cross, the likelihood is from a historical perspective that it wasn't the full cross that he was carrying, but the beam that would have been used to then crucify the hands as such to nail the hands mm-hmm. and that would be set up uh, on top of the, the plinth because otherwise as, as somebody put it uh, in, a, in a place that in which they they crucified so many as Palestine uh, which was also a place that there was very little wood or forestry at the time you would have had a, a dearth of, of wood to be able to crucify people on the story is that the reason that the cross of Jesus was left alone, wasn't reused afterwards, was because the Romans, being quite superstitious and seeing the various phenomena that took place at his death, the earthquake, the the, um, the darkening of the sun and, and the moon and uh, all of those kind of things, decided that it would be bad luck to go near it again. And so it was buried on the mountain of, the, of, the, of Golgotha. And the Christians marked where it had been buried, but nobody went... Uh, went near it for quite some time. The story then jumps to Constantine becoming uh, the first Christian emperor and sending his mother, Helena, to seek relics of Christ um, that had been hidden by the Christians in Jerusalem and uh, then at the fall, after the fall of Jerusalem had been taken to, to various places around the, the near Middle East. And so it's Helena who comes across the cross, who digs on Golgotha until they find three crosses, supposedly the cross of the two thieves and the cross of Christ, which was a crux majestus, as the, the Romans called it, which was a, a, a larger cross than the other two and was generally used to make a public spectacle of someone who had been seen to insult the authority of the army or the authority of the, the overlords, the Roman overlords at the time. So at that point, Helena decides she needs to find out which one of the three is the cross. And the story is that there'd been a gentleman who'd been injured quite badly during the excavations. And so they laid him on the cross. And when he was laid on the cross that had been Christ's, he recovered his health. And so they knew this was it. And this was taken in glory to to Rome. It was then cut into three pieces. The cross beam was kept intact, but the, the, uh, the vertical piece was cut into three to be taken to Constantinople, Jerusalem and Rome as a sign of kind of Christian unity. 
and it was the gift of the emperor to give pieces of it to people who were, I suppose, advancing Christianity or considered friends of the emperor, etc. So very, very quickly it becomes divided up uh, into into smaller and smaller pieces. A piece of the cross is generally uh, held in the pectoral cross, the cross that's worn on the chest of the patriarchs and the popes along the way. And it's the primary relic that's used in rites of exorcism particularly as well. But again, one of the the difficulties is that over the years, the diffusion of relics becomes further and further. And we also have people then who make uh, replicas of relics and touch them to the relics of the cross. Mm -hmm. And now they have their relic of the cross. And so uh, it becomes uh, quite confusing along the way. So nowadays we only honor as relics of the cross what we call the historical relics. They're the large pieces that are held in various uh, patriarchal basilicas and things like that and smaller pieces that have definitive providence. In other words, they come certified by the Vatican as being able to prove that they come from a larger relic um, that we know came from the original cross itself. Now, often, and I've done this myself, I see something called the Holy Rood that is conflated sometimes with pieces of the true cross. Mm. Uh, I've seen in, in writing and so forth. That What is the Holy Rood? Well, the, the Holy Rood is the Holy Cross. Um, so the, the Rood, uh, or double O-D, is an old English word for, for a beam, um, a, a wooden beam. And that's the, the cross piece of the cross. So it's the it's the piece that Christ's, uh, the, the beams that went into the making up of, of Christ's cross. So there's a very, very famous uh, old English poem known as the Dream of the Rood, which is basically that the cross lamenting that its wood has been used to crucify the Saviour. And it's 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 praying that it might become a softer, younger tree again to be able to to bend so as to ease the agony of the one who's who's on it. So in older churches, older medieval churches, you had what was called the rude screen or the below which was a, a screen in front of the altar or the, 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 the kind of sanctuary which generally had images of the saints, uh, the angels. It was kind of the Western version of the iconostasis, which is, still exists in the in the Orthodox churches. And that would be topped with a Calvary scene of Mary, um, sometimes Mary Magdalene as well, and uh, John the Evangelist, and a, crucif- a, a figure of the crucified Christ. That was the rude screen. Okay, that's probably where the confusion came in. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the myth went around that it was the screen to keep the rude people out from the church, but that's it's a completely different rude. Uh, yeah. No, no, I, I kind of saw it used interchangeably, like the holy rude and the true cross. I kind of yeah, yeah, okay. and it's again, it's just it's just an English language, an English name for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay, let's get into the revelation of relics. So this is where um, again, it's present in many traditions, but it's where a person has a dream or a vision and is is shown uh, where relics are to be found that had been hidden previously or hadn't even been discovered previously. So within within tradition, the most famous of these within the Christian tradition would be the relics of, of St. James that are now in Compostela in Spain. Um, so James being one of the apostles of the Lord, um, a martyr, had died in, in, in Jerusalem. And how do we find his relics in Spain? Well, the story is that during the, one of the waves of persecution, um, the relics of James were hidden and were transported. Sometimes we're told transported by Christians, sometimes transported by, by angels, depending on the, the, the particular legend, the legendum, and were buried in 
uh, in a field in Spain uh, to be returned to to be saved by by these these Christian monks, but unfortunately they 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 get distracted or they die or they're they're lost depending on on the stories and the relics are left undiscovered for centuries until a passing farmer sees uh, an unusual light in the field um, and it's shining down on one particular spot. And so the field becomes known as Compostela, uh, the field of the star, um, because it was it was believed that it was a star that was shining directly on a kind of, a, a, again, a ball of light seen to be hovering in the field over this particular place. And so seeing this as, uh, in the farmer's mind, hopefully a sign that there was buried treasure, he digs down only to discover the casket of the relic of St. James. And to this day, that casket now is in the Basilica of Compostela and is the, is the goal of the great Camino, the, the, the pilgrimage in Europe that many, many people make and have made for over 1500 years now at this stage. And most cities in Europe will have a St. James's Street or a St. James's Gate, which is where the pilgrims from that particular city would begin to make the Camino the way, uh, the journey to uh, to the tomb of St. James. And it was considered such a sacred journey that if you got there to venerate the relics, it was considered as being uh, the equivalent of journeying to, to, to the Holy Land itself, to Jerusalem, in terms of the medieval understanding of pilgrimage as being also a, an expiatory practice so as to prepare one to enter heaven as quickly as possible. So this is where, where relics kind of appear out of out of the blue. Mm-hmm. I suppose a smaller experience of that would be my experience with Seraphim, um, you know, a kind of a, a calling from the other side to point out where relics are present or, or, or are hidden. There's a similar tradition in the Tibetan Buddhist uh, tradition as well, where great bodhisattvas or ascended masters will leave teachings, ritual objects, bones, relics, etc., to be discovered at a later stage. And so the idea is that either their incarnations now uh, or through meditation or revelation, their their disciples will discover where they need to go to find these particular objects that manifest. So in that sense, they can be they can be quite similar to apports in the um, the kind of more psychic research uh, way, I suppose, a psychic research way in that, as I say, like with St. James, sometimes they're they're to be dug for or searched for, but are revealed through very supernatural means or indeed they simply appear. So one of the most famous of these would be what's known as the Holy House, um, the Holy House of Loreto. Uh, so in Italy, in Loreto, you will find contained within the church there, the house that is the house in which uh, Mary grew up and received the Annunciation to the Ar- uh, from the Archangel Gabriel, and it's considered one of the holiest relics in Christendom, but it's in Italy. And how did it get to Italy? Well, we're told that because of the invading of our armies and the various difficult political situation in Israel, one day the, the people in Nazareth woke up to discover that the house was gone. Um, and the people in Loreto discovered that the house had appeared. And so that's uh, probably the most major revelation of relics to, to have taken place at, at that time. It's believed that uh, it was uh, taken by, by angels to be removed to Loreto for safekeeping. Uh, and has been there ever since. Given my experience having to do with, you know, evidence and missing evidence mm. and, and the unclarity of evidence, um, yeah. I have no doubt that many of these things, including the Shroud, mm. are going to remain inconclusive. Oh, I, I think they have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's part of their reason for being. Mm-hmm. Um, is that that um, they invite faith, mm-hmm. but never explain anything. 
I, I think that's that's part of the invitation of these objects, or indeed indeed of these people, even when they're living, the the the, the, the holy ones that we meet along the way, is that they point to something beyond, um, and they invite us a little further along the journey. And if we're open to that to that journey, open to that mystery, it's worth recognizing that the original the original word for sacrament was mystery, mysterion, and the idea being that one enters into a wordless and nameless place, a conceptless place, uh, that any interaction with the divine should bring us above all else to silence. And it's the silence of that kind of um, mysterium tremens, you know, that, that we, we, we end up in, in, in the presence of such a mystery that we fall silent because our conceptual mind can't actually deal with it properly. And as a result, our way into enlightenment, illumination, sanctification, oneness, whatever you want to call it, uh, is to actually to be kind of knocked out of our linear way of thinking or our rational way of thinking. And that's what these objects and artifacts and articles are meant to do. They're meant to inspire wonder. I think they're meant to inspire awe. When we see them presented in the way that they would have been traditionally presented, whether that's in a in a Buddhist temple or or a, or a Christian monastery, very often it's with all of the sensory cues of incense and candlelight and stained glass and chanting and you know all of that is part of the one experience that allows the the presence to manifest and for us to recognize that presences exist beyond our our usual sensory way of of experiencing them and i think when that happens then we're brought into that place where you know does it matter whether it is historically accurate and authentic it, it might to some and it's important in terms of making sure that people aren't lying or anything mm-hmm. like that deliberately. I think that's very important. But it's also equally important, I think, that in the sense of mystery and communion, we begin to recognize that there are ways of relating that are far beyond the rational. The comparison to paranormal evidence and, and so forth is, I mean, it's just one-to-one, really. It's Sure, it's, it's, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I always, the way I view it is that, you know, that all of these things are using the same channels, I think there are, there are channels that 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 operate with within us and and around us ways of of connecting with whether it's the holy or the unholy uh, side of of the other of that great spectrum of of otherness and they're going to be using the same channels in order to communicate to contact to talk so whether that's the fact that stones are thrown and noises are heard in one place and in another place the relics make noise and jump uh, by themselves, you know, the, the the question should be, well, where where does the effect originate from, and what effect does does it have on us? You know, what is it leading us to? Is it leading us into a greater sense of mystery and peace and presence, or is it leading us into a greater sense of fear and um, and worry and stress? And I think we pursue the positive and let go of the negative is the the discernment of that, you know. But I, I did smile when you were talking about disappearing evidence. I was present in a in a, in a monastery in in, um, in Italy some years ago, and the great prize of this particular monastery is they have the three the, the three skulls that belonged to three robbers that were converted by Saint Francis in his preaching and later became great saint, saints in the order themselves. It's a very famous story in the life of Saint Francis that he he converted these three robbers through his humility and peace and they eventually entered the order and became monks themselves and, and died in, in the order of sanctity and 
we had a friar who was in Italian and he was speaking all about this and we were about to see these three skulls and, you know, and we, we'd be able to venerate these three men and he gave us their names and their story. And meanwhile, there's a lovely velvet curtain and we were waiting for the moment that the velvet curtain would be pulled back to reveal the, the three, the three skulls of our, of our three robber brothers. And, um, it came to the moment and he pulled back the cord and he kept talking and we realized there were only two skulls in the box. Wow. So we said to him, eventually somebody broke in on his his conversation, his lecture and said, uh, there's only two. And he turned around and looked and it was this exasperated sigh, said something in Italian. I, my Italian wasn't good enough. So I asked one of the lads afterwards, what did he say? And he said, oh, he's gone again. Uh-huh. And And it was the fact that one particular skull regularly disappears wow. and just reappears back in the box I, I, um, yeah. wow Amazing. wherever it goes <laughs> yeah yeah and again i've heard a you know a number of stories my friend tobe from strange mm-hmm. tells a story of a rock that that was mm-hmm. in a port that he put in a little metal box and he said sometimes he shakes it and it's there and sometimes he shakes it and it's not in there yeah so it's, it's, yeah it's kind of a a schrodinger uh, psychic experience uh, um yeah. but it's it's um these things have huge, huge levels of commonality. And I think we would benefit far more if, you know, instead of dividing ourselves into various different fields, we were actually able to bring as many different people and places and traditions together to simply talk about all of this phenomena together. Yeah. And to explain, and I think we can do that still with respect and reverence for the various sets of belief that might be behind um, the different traditions. But even just to know the commonality, to share the commonality is something that, that at the very least, it makes us, I think, better human beings together because we don't then start dividing people into those who are part of my camp and those who aren't. You know, we begin to understand that there's a universal experience that we're having. And OK, I believe one set of, of tenets about, about that. I can recognize that you have the right to believe whatever you want to believe about that. But at the very least, we can we can immerse ourselves experientially. Um, there's a lovely story told about, you know, that, that um, somebody gets to heaven and uh, he goes into one particular room and it's just a whole lot of people shouting at each other. And he says, and he says to the, the angel who's leading him around, you know, what's this room? And he says, oh, this is the room of the theologians. <laughs> um, and he walks into another room and it's total silence and people are just sitting there smiling at each other. And he, he notices that they're from all over the world and they're all different kinds of people, all colors and creeds and all the rest of it. And he says, you know what's this room he says well this is the room of the mystics and it's just the fact that they can be in silence that they're happy to be in silence with each other so i don't know yeah i think i think the more we try and impose a very rational scientific model on all of this yeah it's great in terms of collating data but i don't think it's going to advance us towards understanding Mm -hmm. per se i agree Um, absolutely people are waiting for disclosure (laughs) and and Either yeah. was, you know, as Patrick Harper said so wonderfully, and I tell people, you know, that it, I quote him, I misquote him quite often because he said it more poetically than, than I would. But uh, he said that the fairies are always going, going and never gone. And the UFOs, are, <laughs> yeah. the, the aliens are always coming, coming and never here. And it's it's an absolute beautiful metaphor. For, it's true. For it's, yeah. it's so true. And I mean, I can I can chime in on that and say, you know, in, in, in the tradition, you can say, well, the end of the world is, is always just around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's absolutely true in the, in the sense that eventually you arrive at the point of saying the one thing that all of the prophets of the end of the world forget is that if you're coming at it from the Christian tradition, is that the one thing Christ told us about the end of the world is that we would not know 
mm. until it happened that it was going to arrive. So, you know, the call is, is to behave as though the apocalypse, which actually simply means the pulling back of a curtain. That's all that word means, the pulling back of a curtain to see to, to see the light. Um, the apocalypse is something that can happen in each moment if we if we want it to happen in that way. Well, I think we'll end there. Brother Richard, thank you for your time. Thank you once again for coming on Strange Familiars. You're always most welcome, and it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be part of the Strange Familiars uh, group, if we'll call it that. Photo of the week. Hey, I just wanted to say I enjoyed that little saucer full of secrets that you guys... (laughs) Your Pink Floyd references. At least they're all early Pink Floyd references. We have a non-person-based photo of the week this week. From Nuremberg. Yeah, I don't know if this made it through the war or not, so... It's the interior of a church. CDB. We Do we know which church does it say? Well, can you read German? <laughs> so this is a CDB photograph of a really, really ornate church interior. Did you pick this because Brother Richard was on this week? <laughs> you know I like a theme. <laughs> I like interiors just generally, and then I like anything sort of Gothic Revival era. Yeah. That's like... I'm trying to make out the statues. I have to get a magnifying glass. Yeah, get a loop and see what the Stations of the Cross look like there. 1870s? Yeah, I would say. I'm getting better. Mm-hmm. I'm getting better. If you go to the show notes under this episode at strangefamiliars.com, there'll be a picture of the CDV. If you click on that... It'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can buy that or other photos of the week. While you're at Etsy, check out our other wares. Strange Familiars t-shirts. So far, we still have every size. They go quick, though. Mm -hmm. So I think size large is maybe the most popular, but the extended sizes sell out quickly, too. So if you're 2X or 3X and you want a Strange Familiars shirt, I'm talking about the classic Strange Familiars shirt with the Awoken Tree logo. Go ahead and check them out at Etsy. All of my books are there, including my new art booklet, Monsters Under the Hospital Bed. Any of my books you get there, or or the Monsters booklet, they all come signed by me. If you get them from Etsy, you don't even have to ask. I have CDs on there and original artwork and more. Our shop name on Etsy is Lost Grave. It's one word. Just type in Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff will come up. While you're on Etsy, check out Chad's shop, Rock Rabbit Outdoors, and check out our friends at Karmic Garden. One word, Karmic Garden. So if you want more Brother Richard, make sure to check out that patron show. Probably in the next few days, we'll be posting that. All right, thanks everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more or to purchase music by Stonebreath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can join the Strange Familiars gathering group there. And if you're wandering around the web looking for us, we are at strangefamiliars.com. People used to surf. I guess they wander now. Can you wander with a surfboard? Of course you can. I guess you can surf wander. You can wander the surf.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.